That, that's a hymn of certainty, isn't it? It's a hymn of confidence, of assurance before, before the throne of God himself. And that's really at the very heart and soul of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is laid out for us in the epistle uh, to the Romans. It's not news of um, maybes or possibly when I get to the last day, God might accept me. It's a message that holds in front of us either two, one of two ways. That there is before God, in and of yourself, no hope of acceptance before Him. Because you cannot offer anything to Him by which He would receive you into His presence. Or there is absolute confidence that God will receive me. That He has received me. Because He has received His risen Son into heaven and I'm in Him. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we've just sung, and it's a wonderful entry point for us uh, into our text this morning, uh, which is from Romans chapter 5. You'll find it printed in the worship guide uh, or uh, in your Bible if you've brought it with you. And the text that we're considering is Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. Uh, but just to set it in context, we'll read again, as we did last week, verses 1 through 5 of uh, the fifth chapter of Romans. So, This is the word of God. Let's give our attention to it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray. Oh God, we Thank you for your word, and we ask for your blessing upon it. God, this is your word. This is what you have said. And you speak here about what you have done for sinners like every one of us. And you tell us some very plain and mysterious things about what that means for the way that we live our lives in this fallen world. God, we confess that we need to hear you. We need to listen to you. We need you to teach us. Perhaps we need you to raise us from our graves. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word. For we ask in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, who is the living word. Amen. We've been studying the book of Romans together for about four months. And one of the things that we've seen time and again, and that we continue to see, I hope, is the radical difference between every religion of the world and biblical Christianity. Because, you see, every religion at the end of the day, every other religion tells you, gives you ways that you can take something to God in hopes that he will then receive you. Essentially, that's what every world religion does. Against that backdrop, God speaks to us from his word and says something completely different. Because Christianity says, of course, the gospel says, you have nothing to give to God but your sin. 
You have nothing to contribute to salvation but the sin that makes it necessary. And so Christianity says, no, don't give something to God in hopes that he'll receive you. Receive from God what's required for your salvation. Receive from him the gift of his son, the gift of redemption. And God will receive you not on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of what has already been done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have no righteousness of your own, nothing to boast about uh, before God. And so Paul has been laboring to say the person who will be right before God, the person who can stand before God confidently is not the person who's looking for something in himself, some little patch of ground that he's established and built for himself that he can stand on and say, God, look what I've done. Will you receive me? That's not the person who stands righteous before God. No, the person who stands righteous before God and can lift up his head or her head and say, God, you are my father and I know that you receive me, is the one who says, because you have placed me in Jesus Christ. And he is yours and I am his and so I am yours. And that's what Paul's been driving us to see, that there is no other ground before God but to stand in Jesus Christ. And he's put that in in terms of God's wrath. And uh, I've heard a story years ago and heard it several times since that I think illustrates it well. And it uses the idea of fire. You hear very often stories of those who are forest fire fighters uh, will tell stories of scorching large uh, areas of forested land in order to prevent the, spread of, the further spread of fire. Because by scorching that land, it, it takes away all of the fuel that the fire needs to spread. And so to stand on scorched earth in that case is to be safe from, further, from the further encroachment of fire and, and of destruction. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul has been saying, is the scorched earth on which you can stand. Because it's in him that the judgment of God has been carried out and met in full at the cross. If you would stand before God, you must stand in him. And if you stand in him, you can know, as Paul says here at the beginning of Romans 5, we've been justified by faith, therefore we have what? Peace with God. And we considered together last week these three benefits that Paul says flow from justification. And we'll consider a further one today, but he says... Very clearly, what does it mean to belong to Jesus Christ? It means that God is no longer your enemy, but your friend. You're at peace with him. What a, what, that, that is the marvelous thing in this world to know. That while I, was, while I was still his enemy, Christ died for me. And so God has reconciled himself to me. And I'm his child. I'm his friend. I'm at peace with him. And that I have access to him. That I can stand in grace. That I can stand before him and live in the knowledge of his love for me. And have access to him as my father, not once or twice or occasionally, but always living in the presence of God. And doing so in a way, Paul has told us, that that leads to rejoicing because we have hope in the glory of God. God will appear at the last day and will make all things right and will show the splendor of his majesty and his beauty. And you as believers in Jesus Christ will be with him forever in his glory. And so Paul's been pressing us to to see that we have nothing in ourselves in which to hope, nothing in ourselves to trust in, but that in Christ there's all that we need for life. There's all that we need to be received and welcomed by the Father and to live for him, to serve him, to to live for the advance of his kingdom. And that's where Paul takes us today. And we we come to verse 3 and Paul says very interestingly these three words, more than that. 
And we might say, more than that? How could there be more than that? But Paul's pressing us to recognize that if we are rejoicing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, boasting is the word that he's using. If we're boasting in Christ, there is no circumstance in your life that can threaten or undo that. Let me say it another way. If you have been, by God's grace, brought to a place where you are boasting in Christ, that means a joy that is, that is unshakable. It means a rejoicing that doesn't waver with your circumstances. But it's a settled, confident, steady, durable joy that holds up even, Paul says, in your sufferings. That's what he says about Christians here. More than that, we rejoice also in our sufferings. Now, we have all kinds of responses to suffering, don't we? You and I. We have have a variety of ways in which we respond when uh, difficult things come into our lives. And many of those responses are not consistent with the gospel that we've been seeing in Romans. But here's what Paul is saying. He's saying this, and please begin to think about this as, as we'll unpack it a little bit this morning. That if the gospel is beginning to permeate your life, if you're beginning to see who you were, or if you're not a Christian yet, who you still are outside of Christ, and if you're beginning to see what it means to come into fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, if you're beginning to see and and, and experience more and more the, the great horizons of God's love for you in Jesus Christ, then you will be rejoicing even in your sufferings. Now, I, I, wouldn't, I don't know how you feel about this, but I wouldn't dare talk to you that way if God didn't say it in his word. Because sufferings are, are just that. They are sufferings. They are afflictions. They're trials. They're hard. And to, and to stand here and say, to believe in Jesus Christ and belong to him is to rejoice even in your sufferings, is something I say to you because this is exactly what God says in his word. But the question is, how in the world can you do this? Many of you are suffering in ways that no one knows about. Some of you are suffering in ways that that others who are close to you do know about. And and yet those sufferings are are just that. And you wonder, how? How could I rejoice in these things? How could I rejoice in these things that are so painful to me? And that's exactly what I, I think God shows us here in his word. And the first thing that I want you to see is you ask yourself the question, how how is it that I can rejoice even in my sufferings? Is that Paul gives us a very important principle that we need to learn. Because you notice he says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing, knowing that suffering produces endurance and so forth. We rejoice in our sufferings Knowing Now, here's, here's my point, and this is a very short point, but a very crucial point. It's this. So often in the midst of our sufferings, we go off track, and we get turned in on ourselves, and we begin to worry and complain and grumble and be filled with fear for one simple reason, that we do not remember how God has said he will use suffering in our lives. And something goes wrong up here. Something goes wrong up here in our heads. We forget the truth. And what happens is our lives begin to wander from the truth at that point. But Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings knowing 
that in our lives, and he's speaking to Christians, that in the lives of God's children, God will always use suffering to make you like Jesus Christ. Now, some of you have been brought to faith in Jesus Christ through suffering in your lives. God has used suffering to draw you out of yourself and to, to fix you on Jesus Christ. He saved you through suffering. And, and you praise him for that. Others of you right now, and I'm still getting to know you, but I know some of you well enough already to know that you are suffering greatly. And yet what God is saying to you in his word here is that he's using your suffering to press you into the image of Jesus Christ, to make you like him. God's using your suffering productively. So there's this principle that we have to learn if we're going to be able to rejoice in our sufferings, and it's that God is the one who brings friction and pressure and affliction even into the lives of his children because he loves you. Jesus calls his father the vine dresser, and why does he prune the vine? So that it will bear more fruit. He prunes you in love as you're bearing fruit so that you will bear more fruit. And this is this crucial principle that we have got to remember in the midst of our sufferings. I'm, I'm afraid that we often fall into the error of believing that God is, is there primarily to take away our troubles. When in fact, he very often in the lives of his children brings troubles to you in order to make you like Jesus. I don't know everything that God is doing in your suffering. You don't know everything God is doing in your suffering. You don't need to know everything. But you can be sure, Paul is saying, that none of what you're suffering, none of the pressures that you're under in this life are in vain. None of them as a believer in Christ are meaningless or pointless or random. They are all part of your loving Father's plan to make you like His Son. He loves you and He will not let you go. And he is using suffering in your life as part of his redeeming love for you. And you have got to get, and I have got to get that deeply, deeply down into us. And so Paul says, first of all, that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that God is at work in them, that God is using them redemptively in our lives. And then, and this is what I want to spend the most time on this morning, he shows us that there's a pattern to God's work. There's this principle that we need to remember if we're going to learn to rejoice in our sufferings, but there's also this pattern, this sort of a roadmap that Paul gives us that shows us how God uses, generally speaking, how he uses sufferings in the lives of his children. And that's what he goes on to say here in uh, verses 3 and 4. You see that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. There's this roadmap, there's this pattern of God's work in your lives through the, the trials that he brings to you. So when you're, when you're under these pressures of life, what is God doing? Well, generally, here's what he's doing. He's bringing these things into your life so that you will endure to the end. Paul says that in the life of the Christian, this suffering is producing constancy. It's the ability to stand under pressure and not fall, not buckle, not be crushed. The author of Hebrews tells us that we have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And he goes on to challenge us to run with endurance the race that's set before us. But my question to you this morning, the question that comes from this text is what will have to happen in your life 
in order for you to endure to the end? What will have to happen for you to grow strong and to persevere? Do you think, do I think, that a life of relative ease and comfort is, is what will produce that, that result? Of endurance, of strength, of perseverance to the end? But we live that way often, don't we? We live as if, as I was reading a book this week that talks about how we want a Christianity that's like an armchair Christianity where we just sit down and then we suddenly arrive in heaven. But in fact, the call to Jesus Christ is a call to the cross. Uh, Someone reminded me of a quote from Flannery O'Connor who wrote somewhere that people think that faith is an electric blanket when when it is, of course, instead the cross. It's a call to die, to die to ourselves that we might know real life in Jesus Christ. Uh, This week I read an amazing story about three, three, some of you may have heard this, three men who spent about three years now since they did this, ran across the Sahara Desert. Some of you heard this story. They, they began in, uh, in, in Senegal, in Western Africa, and ran through six countries, I think it is, all the way over to, to, into Egypt. Ran, ran on foot, 111 days. Ran 4,500 miles. Uh, and, and, of course, as you read the things that they suffered as a result of the run, you can't help but ask yourself... You, why did, you, why did you do this? Um, but it's remarkable nonetheless. It's absolutely astounding that, that over a course of 111 days, they were running essentially two marathons a day for 111 days. And they, they ran clear across the continent of Africa, clear across the Sahara Desert. And, of course, the question everybody wants to ask them is, how in the world did you train for that? And in some ways they said, well, you don't. <laughs> um, there's nothing you can do to prepare you for, for that. Yet there was this many years long process of, of training their body, not only mentally but, of course, physically, so that they would what? They would stand up under what they knew would be the most awful, grueling test they could ever imagine, and then some. But how was it that they were able to complete the race? Because their training had made them strong. Their training had prepared them to endure what was before them. Now, let me ask you a question, brothers and sisters in Christ. What is it that you think will get you to the end? Will enable you to endure and grow and mature as a believer in Jesus Christ? Very simply, you'll never learn to endure in the Christian life if all you know is comfort and ease. You'll never know that. And so... As you look into your life and you see suffering, you see trials, you feel the pressure as God presses down upon you, then you're hearing from his word what he's saying to you, that he is using that not to crush you down, but to make you strong and to enable you to endure and to stand firm in his grace. But we resist him, don't we? Even while, he's, even while he's trying to give it, we pray, God, help me to endure. Give me grace to endure this life. And yet while he's doing that, we're saying, no, not that way. Don't do it that way. But God is saying, yes, that's the way he's going to do it. Yes that, yes, that way. It's the only way. It's only through these things that go against us, that, that upset our plans, that, that run contrary to our idea of what it means to be happy. 
It's only through those things that we're drawn out of ourselves, that our faith is exercised, that we're forced to say, God, only you can deliver me. And he makes our faith strong and he enables us through suffering to endure to the end. And so suffering leads to endurance, Paul says, but as part of that, it also leads to character or to testedness, provenness. The painful things you endure as a Christian, you go through them, they produce endurance, and as you grow, you're transformed, you're changed from within. Isn't it, it's it's an absolutely amazing thing to be around Christians who have suffered, I mean who have really, really deeply, deeply suffered, and to see how God has made them shine is absolutely amazing. We have friends who uh, we've known for a number of years, and, and they, their children, are, they have 10 children, all grown for the most part. But this man, about a dozen years ago, was in a skiing accident, became a quadriplegic. And he often struggles. He, dis- he falls into despair very easily, doesn't want to live anymore sometimes, wonders why, what, what is God doing? Why has he done this to me? And if you talk to any number of hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of people, they will tell you, I'm a Christian because of that man. I'm in the church because of that man. I'm growing in grace because of that man. Because what they've watched is God polishing him in his weakness, in his suffering, in his affliction, in his sorrow, in his confusion, in the mystery of all of that. You're seeing God just polishing him so that he shines and so that you see in him the, the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly the way God uses suffering, Paul says, to build character, to build Christian character. Now, let me ask you, let me ask you two questions. The first one is easy. If you're a Christian, do you want to be like Jesus Christ? Do you want to be like Christ? Do you pray for that? That's not a hard question to answer if you're a, if you're a Christian. Here's the second question, which is harder to answer. Do you want to die for him? Are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared to lay down all of your life, all of your ambitions, all of your dreams, all of your ideas of what's right and good, and and say to him, Lord Jesus, take all that I am and use it for you and not for my own self. Whatever that might mean for me, at whatever cost that comes, I want to die for you that I might be like you in your glory. Now, do you want that? The first question is easier to answer. Yes, I want to be like Christ. I want to be Christ-like. And yet the second question, I think, shows us where our hearts really are. Do we want God? Are we willing for him to bring suffering into our lives? No, we don't go looking for it. Are we willing for God to bring suffering into our lives in order to make us like Christ? Or do we really just want God to make it all go go away and get better? Do we really just want him to fix our problems? But Paul is saying, oh, believer, if you've seen the glory of the gospel, which is yours in Jesus Christ, then you can trust that God will use what hurts you, not only to enable you to endure, but to make you like the person of his son, to make you like Christ. So that as you say, God, make me like Christ, he's saying, yes, I am. And I know that it hurts, I know that it's painful, but do you trust me to make you like Christ? It's hard, but sooner or later we have, to, we have to get this. It is not God's primary purpose to make you thrilled with your life. 
We're, we're, every one of us still learning that. It is not God's primary plan to work in such a way that you sit back and say, boy, I love my life. It is God's determined purpose, and he will not fail to do it. It is his determined purpose at the last day to make out of all of us together a bride that is absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. As we stand before the Father in glory, in sinless beauty, well, God is working you that way now, isn't he? He's moving you toward that day not primarily for our happiness, but for our holiness, which will be for His glory. So as you're suffering and you struggle and you wonder if God's turned His back on you, you wonder if He's forgotten you, you wonder if He's left you for a while. And you're praying for grace and you're thinking, I'm praying for grace and I'm not getting any grace. But maybe you are getting grace. It's just not what you were looking for. It's maybe, as, as Paul Tripp wrote somewhere, it's not the grace of relief, but the boiling grace of personal transformation. And it's out of those fires that you're being forged into something lovely, what you were meant to be, what you were made to be, what you were redeemed to be. And so Tripp goes on to say this, and I think this really captures it. God will take you, believer. God will take you where you do not want to go in order to achieve in your life what you could not have achieved on your own, in order to make you like Christ. So suffering produces endurance, strength to stand under the pressure. It produces character, forming you in the image of Jesus Christ, who, yes, lives at the right hand of the Father, but first laid down his life and was humiliated and suffered. And then Paul says that these sufferings also produce hope. And throughout this passage, he's talking about the hope of glory. He's talking about the hope that is ours now because of the future that's ours in Christ. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that he's coming at the end of the day and that he will stand on this earth and that he will reign and that I will reign with him in glory. And so I live now in light of that future reality. But sometimes, just sometimes, don't you think, what if that doesn't happen? What if I hope and I hope and I trust and I, and I wait for the Lord and what if at the end of the day he lets me down? Now, let's be honest. You, you, you've thought that before in some way or other. And that's why Paul says here in verse 5, hope does not put us to shame. Hope will not disappoint us. Paul's been telling us one day He says, suffering leads to endurance, to character, to hope. It calls you not to live for short-term solutions, but for long-term glory. But he knows that we have a tendency to doubt God, to wonder if he's going to let us go, to wonder if he's turned away from us. And actually tells us the most wonderful thing here in verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame. Hope will not disappoint you at the last day. Because God's love has been a few drops of it put into your heart. No. God's love has been poured, 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 poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Here's what Paul is saying. Believer, 
as you're feeling yourself under the weight of the pressure of suffering in this life and you're hearing, yes, God is giving me endurance, he's building character, he's, he's confirming the hope that's mine in the Lord Jesus Christ, hear him also say to you, just very simply as his child, he's, he's drawing you near and saying, and I love you, I love you, and I will not let you go, I will not turn you away. Because my love has been poured out, I've poured my love into you by my Spirit, who's there to assure you and assure you and assure you that I love you. And so often, just pastorally, isn't that where we struggle in the midst of suffering? It's we forget, we lose sight of the fact that even in the midst of that, we have the love of God which can never be taken from us. And he'll go on to say this as he moves into this letter. But the Father himself loves you and has given you everything. If you know that, if you know that, can't you trust him and endure whatever you're going through? The Father loves me. He's given me everything. He's given me his son. Well, we need to conclude. We need to wrap this up. And I want to ask you to think about three things here. Because the question is, how do these verses need to change the way that you live? How How do these things need to change your life? I want to ask you to think about these these things and take them with you. The first is this. God is absolutely committed to making you believer like Jesus Christ. Is that what I really want? Is that what I really want? Do you ask yourself that question honestly before the Lord and then find ways in which you're it's a yes and no answer, a yes but answer, a yes but not that way answer. And to say, oh God, I want you to make me like Christ. I want to want that more. Will you please make that the desire of my heart? Please help me to turn loose of anything that's getting in the way of that. And you know that your Father loves that prayer because He wants to make you like Christ and He is making you like Christ. I said three things, let's just make it two. If God in his word is saying to you that in the midst of what you're suffering, you need to be recalibrated by this this news that his love has been poured out in your heart, here's the other thing I want you to think about. Where does that need, where do you need to be doing that in your own life? Where do you need to be reminded of the love of God for you, of the richness and the depth and the power of his love for you, to hear him speaking into your life and saying, oh, my child, I love you and I will not let you go. Where have you forgotten that? Because everything that Paul is saying here, the God who has justified you through faith in Christ, the God who has raised you from the dead in Christ, The God who has given you a future in Christ in glory is the God who is with you every moment of your life saying, I love you. Why would you doubt him? Why would you doubt his love? But he's calling you this morning, not condemning you for doing so, but saying, come and see what I'm doing in your life. Trust me. Trust what I'm doing. And wait until the last. Won't it be amazing in heaven? And we'll stop here. Won't it be amazing in heaven as we live together, whatever that's going to look like, and we look at each other in heaven with our glorified bodies, and we just are, won't we be blown away 
Oh, that's what God was doing in your life. That's what he was doing. I had no idea. Well, if that's going to be the truth then, friends, we have the great privilege, and I know it's not easy, but the great privilege, and God will enable us to do it, to live in light of that now and to trust that he will, by his grace, enable you to rejoice in the hope of glory and even in your sufferings. So let's pray. Oh, God, we pray that you would take this word and drive it down deep in our bones and strengthen us, enable us to stand, make us like Christ, help us to trust you, persuade us over and again of the depth and power and the constancy of your love for us in Christ. And do that, we pray, even now as we come to the table. For these things we ask in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.